Father, that your will is perfect. We praise you for it. We thank you that you have designed for us to be here in this place today before the word. And I ask, Father, that as we come before that word, that you would teach and instruct us, guide us in it. For those who know not Christ, that you would illumine their eyes and help them to see what they cannot see in their own strength. Father, for us as we consider the Word of God again together, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to gather in this warm place, to gather undistracted, without fear. Uh, We thank you, Father, for the blessings that are ours that many do not have. But I pray then that we would dig deeply into this Word today, that you would move in our congregation, through the teaching and instruction of the Spirit of God to help us to understand what is before us, what we must gather and take with us by way of conviction and growth and understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we pick up our series in the through the book of uh, partially through the book of first corinthians we'll take a break somewhere after the snow is gone and the warmth has returned we trust the first corinthians chapter one biblical christianity is the only perfectly rational belief system in the universe Since truth is that which corresponds to reality, and since God is the ultimate reality, it follows that the revealing of His written Word and His living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, is perfectly rational. The widespread and entrenched rejection of this claim harkens all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Population 2. When... Satan attacked God's reasonableness. In a manner of speaking, Satan said to Adam and Eve, Come, let us reason together. And from that moment on, the fundamental orientation of man's kingdom is this. Human reason seeking belief. Human reason seeking belief. We start with human wisdom and rational investigation, then determine whether or not we can believe what God has revealed, whether it's reasonable, whether it leads to what is genuinely good. And every unbeliever in the end concludes that we cannot find God reasonable. Reason seeking belief always disbelieves God. Always. But born-again believers have always realized that this is exactly backwards. Christianity is not an irrational faith. When we talk of faith, we do not mean blind leap into the darkness, trusting nothing and just hoping something out there catches us. Christianity is not an irrational faith whatsoever. However, the biblical approach is not reason-seeking faith, but rather faith-seeking reason. Adam's fall in sin displays the truth that we must first heed God's word, then labor to apply human reason to figure it out. Fifth century theologian Augustine encapsulated this early church belief when he famously exhorted Christians, believe, 
that you may understand. Believe that you may understand. He's reflecting that order, understanding the early church's perception of that. In the 11th century, Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, fine-tuned this perspective with his memorable phrase, faith seeking understanding. As the only path to joy in truly knowing and loving God as he developed that theme. So the fountain from which these theologians drew in articulating the right relationship between faith and reason connects us directly to the passage that is before us here today. As we do that, it's really vital that we understand the context. That this background, we've, we touched on it last week, but remembering it again. If you could wrap today's movie industry public university systems, and social media platforms, if you could wrap them all into one, you would have the rough equivalent in, in the Corinthians day of the time spent and the value placed on traveling sophists or rhetoricians in that city and in, the, in that world. Greeks loved philosophical debate. Traveling teachers would traipse from city to city presenting their highly polished lectures of philosophy. And the f- hearers would then latch onto their favorite speaker and debate the virtues of this philosophy against that philosophy. They loved it. It was like the social media of the day, but for them it was face-to-face conversation. And in that situation, how a teacher spoke his eloquence, his studied cadences, his skill in pleasing the crowd with rhetorical flourishes, that loomed larger than what he said. So the content was in a sense secondary to how it was said, to the performance of the speech. And people tied into these philosophers, these traveling teachers like Minnesotans tie into sports figures or musicians or something of the like. This is my favorite. This is why this is the best. This is the best of all time. They would have that kind of focus in in their setting. Very unlike our own. But like many political debates of our day, truth mattered less than who scored the most tweetable line in the debate or speech. That's what it was about. Now, this was the world in which the Corinthians lived. This was their environment. This was was what was going on outside the doors of the church. The problem was that the Corinthian believers had taken that world and brought it inside the church. That's how they were relating to one another. Who's your favorite teacher? Why is that your favorite teacher? Why is that presentation better than the guy I like? And they were having these debates and and getting divided by them, bringing that culture into the church. Just what they knew. It's where they grew up. It was Corinth, after all. What they weren't seeing, as Paul has brought out, is that you're the church of Jesus Christ. You're an entirely different culture. And you need to realize that the way that you're relating to one another is not grounded in the saving work of Jesus We need to correct it. And so in verses 10 through 17, he rebukes them for being out of sync with the reconciling gospel. The most reconciling power in the universe is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not living that way. But in this day of eloquent speech making, the method 
Put this together now. That's their world. That's their problem. How does that relate to Paul? Well, he, he doesn't score very high. The way in which he spoke, and on some level even the message that he spoke, was not favored in that kind of environment. And it was creating a tension between Paul and the Corinthian believers. We notice the evidence of this tension in the verse that comes before the section here today that we'll consider, and then what follows. Notice it here in 117. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Notice this. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That wasn't a throwaway phrase. They were having a problem with that. And, he, and so he directs this to them, words of eloquent wisdom. That's not God's wisdom, that's the wisdom of their day. The human reason of their day, like the sophists that traveled around. I did not preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, with that studied rhetorical eloquence and flourish. That's, I didn't do it that way. Why? Because I could empty the cross of Christ of its power. And there's tension there. If you don't see that, we're missing the point. There's tension there. Now go to chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You see, it. this is what you expect because you've brought your culture into the church, into your Christian practice. It's dividing you. This is what you expect, and it's dividing me from you. Because that's not how I preached. I spoke the straight up gospel of Christ with power. Not my power. Not my performance in the speech. But the truth that God has revealed to us. So now in verses 18 to 31, Paul drives at the very heart of the matter here that he's discussing. And in doing so, he exhorts us to understand that no one arrives at saving faith by human reason alone. Merely in that approach. All who insist on starting with human reason to see if God is reasonable will never get there. They will never trust the saving gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. To the broad world that relies on human wisdom, the, co- the gospel always proves weak, irrational, foolish, as people will take those who embrace that gospel. So it's in this context that Paul says in verse 17, I did not preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's true. I'll I'll admit it, he says. I do not speak with the same polished rhetorical flair and eloquence. I'm not a performer. And I'm not tapping into what the sophists, the popular pagan teachers were frequently saying in Corinth that was so popular. I'm not tapping into that. Why not? So as not to empty the cross of its power. So if I use the methods of speakers who start with human wisdom and reason, and if I labor to craft my sermons to draw attention to my eloquence and my skill as a preacher, I'd be emptying the gospel of its power to save. It's not very far from us, is it? 
turn on the television on early Sunday morning and you can see the gospel emptied of its power right in front of you. And Paul's saying, I want nothing to do with that. Now, there's something that misses us a bit here in the English translation. You see that phrase at 17 that says, with words of eloquent wisdom. That is literally singular. Word of, put, human wisdom. That's what he says. I don't speak with word of wisdom. He's saying, I don't speak with that logos of human wisdom. But... We find, first of all, we, I've, I've lost power here, but you guys can just advance that thing to the next slide, if you will, and find the, the point. There we go. The message that saves believers is foolishness to the lost. We just must face this. And it, it is essential that we do. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In contrast to word of man's reason, he now connects this to word of the cross. That is the, the message of the cross. I think the idea here is primarily the content of that message. Jesus died in the place of sinners and he rose from the dead to redeem us from sin and hell. That message of the cross, that content of that message is what he preaches. So get this, brothers and sisters, Paul says. You've got to get this. This message is folly to those who are perishing you're not going to clean it up you're not going to satisfy people with human reason it is foolishness to the naked mind to human reason a crucified messiah it's utterly irrational it defies human wisdom messiahs ride white horses they wield big swords. They defeat armies. They do not get executed in humiliating weakness. Only losers die on crosses. To put your trust and to worship a crucified Messiah is sheer stupidity. It's irrational. Indeed it is, Paul says, to those who are perishing. That present tense verb, those who are in the process of dying, they, they, they're, they're in a living death. As they remain lost in their sin, it also points to the need then of a radical transformation in order for them to be saved. As those who are perishing, and let's just be real personal here, he says, that those sophists, those wisdom teachers that come along and speak to you in large numbers and that create the debate and all the fun that you have as Corinthians, the gospel is utter foolishness to them. You've got to understand that when you come to understand what they're saying. But, you see the contrast here, verse 18, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is information, it is a message, but it is more. It is, the gospel is power. It is the news with the supernatural power to transform the human soul. It is a word from God that we don't test through our re reason, but rather a word from God that is such good news that it hits us, the light comes on, and we say there's nothing more reasonable in the universe. Only God could have figured that out. 
Brothers and sisters, Paul says, if I speak in such a way as to draw attention to me, grandstanding, seeking to impress my hearers with my ability and wisdom, my performance, my presentation, I can empty that message of all that power. Because I'm drawing attention to me and how I speak and how I entertain you. I want nothing to do with that, he said. I can turn the preaching of the gospel into something that siphons off the power to transform souls. That should frighten us. May God so bless Eden Baptist Church that we never shut off that power by relying on the flesh. That we never adjust the message to appease the world around us so that through their human reason they say, that's that's a nice message. We then have turned away from the power of God. We sense that there are senses just as we're singing today and some of these themes and songs. It takes the power of God to save us. It takes the power of God for us to understand this message. Paul supports now this thesis by appealing to Isaiah 29. The The Old Testament tells us this. When God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What's the context there? If you remember it, Isaiah was warning and chiding the Israelites. There was threat from Assyria, and they said, we know the answer, human wisdom. This is the answer. Let's ring up Egypt. We give them a call. They'll come to our aid. They'll help us against Assyria. The problem was that made perfect human sense by anybody that was strategizing militarily. The problem was it was disobeying God. He said to them, no to that strategy. Trust me, I will deliver you. And they said, you know, it's more reasonable that we call the Egyptians. And so the prophet says of God here, I'm going to turn your wisdom into foolishness. You're going to see how wrong it is not to trust my word and hear me. Paul says, don't go there. That's where Israel went. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says. I will Uh, The discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so now he turns that in verse 20 to them. Specifically, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? I think the one who is wise is that Greek sophist, that traveling speaker. Where's that wise one? Where is the scribe is a reference to the Jews. We have Gentile and Jew here. The Jews, the scribes, those who studied the law at great depth. And in that law, in the very word of God that pointed to Messiah Christ, they rejected him because human wisdom, of course. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here's where they are. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. Rather, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 21, I, that, can, that can miss us. and I think a lot of times we read it, it's like, that just sounds gobbled. I, I, what does that mean? Slow it down. Think really clearly about it. Verse 21, we're using reason here <laughs> to understand the Scriptures. That's what we're supposed to do. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That is, through human reason. God designed it this way. Do, we, do you believe that? He sovereignly determined in eternity past that no one would know him by the natural discovery of human reason. God sovereignly determined that no one would reason his or her way to redemption and to fellowship with God. Rather, see the phrase there, it pleased God. It is God's sovereign pleasure to save those who believe the good news of salvation in Christ. So it is not this. I reason my way to how best to please God. No, rather, God acts. He provides redemption in Christ, revealing to us what He has done. I must then believe what God has done as revealed in the Gospel. Then and only then am I equipped to begin a life of rational investigation into the saving work that God has accomplished in Christ. That order God designed from the very beginning. From here forward then, it is for us in faith, it is faith-seeking reason. When human reason seeks faith, what are the results? The results are predictable and they're universal. When, when reason seeks faith, it's disastrous. Where does it end up? I will earn God's salvation by my good deeds. Whatever that is, however you construct it, whatever religion it's couched in, that's where it goes to. I will earn God's salvation by who I am, by what I do. That's where human reason will always lead, or I'll save myself. I really don't need God. But the wisdom from above reveals us to be sinners who cannot save ourselves and who live under the judgment of God. That's the dark side of the good news. If you come here today not knowing Christ as your Savior, this is where you've got to start. I am a sinner who has broken His law, and I live under His just judgment. He's revealing to us that's where we start. But God then sends His eternal Son to take on flesh and to pay the penalty of death that we deserve dying in our place. This is the good news. The good news is not found in you and your performance. It's found in what God has done for you in Christ. Then God shows His approval of Christ's atoning work by raising Jesus from the dead as He prophesied. How does this message hold up against man's reason? The simple truths that I've expressed that we hear time and again and study over and again as a church, we're very comfortable here in this setting hearing this. How does that work when you speak that to your neighbor? How does that work when you talk about this to that person at work? When you talk to somebody who doesn't follow Christ? Are you with me? I mean, there's times I share this point, I'm just like, this sounds crazy. And the person looking at me saying, you're crazy. What are you talking about? How on earth is my life going to be better by somebody dying 2,000 years ago? And he was God and he was man. And what are you talking about? It's all a silly myth. 
It's ridiculous to a world that is reasoning its way to God. Verse 22, the Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. Messiahs are supposed to do miracles. They're supposed to demonstrate that they have God's approval by these miracles. Well, the Jews got such a Messiah. They just rejected him in life and held him in utter contempt when he was executed as one cursed by God. Then they simply refused to face the fact that his miraculous, of his miraculous bodily resurrection. For their part, the Gentiles require strict human logic, we see here in verse 22. A reasonable Messiah that the mind can accept. Well, they got one, in a manner of speaking, but they also tripped over the wisdom of his teaching. And then there's that crucifixion thing. That's not working at all. But tracking against everyone, Paul explains, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. We lead with it. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We recognize that. Notice verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. To the Jews, a suffering Savior was a contradiction in terms. Redemption won on a Roman cross was an utter absurdity. To the Greeks, the idea of God dying and a dead man rising from the grave was insanity. This, that their dualistic sense, this is a broken, fallen world. The best thing you can do is get out of it and get delivered from this physical world. Not go back to the physical body. This is absurdity, they said. Reason does not permit a Messiah who dies, and reason does not permit a dead man to live again. But for everyone God calls to new life, the redemption paid by the crucified Christ with his life substituting for sinners is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This message, this plan of salvation, folly to the world, but infinitely wise. For indeed, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Hey, people, you're hooking your wagon to the wrong teachers, at least to the wrong conception of these teachers. Nothing wrong with Apollos, nothing wrong with Peter. I don't think there's anything wrong with me in this. I'm an apostle sent by Christ and I'm preaching the truth. There's nothing wrong there. But the way that you're going about this, you're hooking your wagon to the wrong thing. In verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. Eden Baptist Church, we cannot forget this. The gospel, the message of salvation in the work of Christ in our behalf is a message that will always be viewed as senseless to the unaided believer, uh, unbeliever. But this message is nothing other than eternal wisdom that gives new life to the spiritually dead. This was life the Corinthians had indeed experienced, responding to Paul's preaching. It's this message and no other that they should be celebrating and widely proclaiming, not subtly being embarrassed by it. 
Now Paul says then to this point through verse 25, who in the name of human wisdom and rationale would ever choose this plan of salvation? And the answer is no one. Only God, whose wisdom is greater than our wisdom, would choose this plan. Now, he moves to what could be taken as offensive in a different direction. Now he asks a second question, who in the name of wisdom would choose you? That's the whole point here, uh, point two he can bring up. The people that God chooses to stay, save are lowly in the eyes of the lost. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The Corinthian church was not comprised of wealthy, influential, high-born citizens. Perhaps a few were there, because he says not many. But that, that, that's not the point. It's what Corinth, the culture, was looking for and prized. That's not the people God chose to save. Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Notice here three times, verses 27 through 29, through 28, God chose. Verse 27, but God chose. God chose. Verse 28, God chose. Three times. So this is not the point that the world throws this at. It's been there since the ancient church and the critics of Christianity. But this is not the case that only weak people are interested in the salvation in Christ. Only the lowly choose Christ. You see, he turns that the other direction, doesn't he? He said it's God who chose them. God chooses a certain kind of people to respond to His saving grace. In large numbers, these are humble and the lowly of society. Why is that? To demonstrate that the glory and salvation is not ours, but is God's alone. Why? To shame the proud who believe their reason, their wealth, and their power earn them a special standing with man and therefore earn them a special standing with God. No! says the Sovereign Lord. Remember the Pharisee, thank you God that I'm not like the dregs of society around me. No, God chooses to save the downtrodden, the weak, the forgotten, the insignificant, the homely. Rejoice, Eden Baptist Church. God loves to love below average people. Amen. Aren't we thankful for that? It's good news because all the glory goes to Him. God is bringing this perishing world, you notice there in verse 28, to nothing. I think the idea there is that this world is being brought to final destruction. That's the planet we stand on. That's where it's headed. That's where it's going so that it will be renewed by Christ. But what a glorious heritage we now enjoy in union with Christ. Verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Glory, believer. Think of it. What grace. Because of Him. In Him. 
We're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Wisdom from God, I think in context, Christ is our wisdom, he gives to us wisdom, he guides us with wisdom, all of that's true, it's just not what Paul's talking about here. The wisdom he's talking about here is the salvation in the cross. This is the wisdom of God that saves you. This whole message of Christ coming and dying in your place to save you. This wisdom from God, there are now synonyms piled up here. That's all, he's just talking about the same thing, I think. It's wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. You call it what you will, whatever metaphor you want to use. All of this comes from God to you weak and lowly people who are never going to impress this world. We've heard it said so many times, if God would just save that person, that key figure, this important individual, oh, what would happen? People know who this person is and they would just respond and what a wonderful thing it'd be if this athlete or musician or politician was saved. Now, if one of our presidents was saved, we'd be impressed. We'll go with that. That'd be wonderful to come to conversion. But it's just not how God works. He loves scraping the bottom of the barrel. Sorry, but he does, and we're all in that, right? That's who we are. And thank God for it. In this message, we now, the lowly of this world, have that wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption from God. Here's why. Why? Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There it is. Born again believer in Christ, our eternal heritage is to enter someday into the presence of God. And in His eternal presence, all glory, laud, and honor will go to Him forever. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is preceded by verse 7, which explains why we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think of it. For all eternity, we will revel not in how our wisdom, our rational efforts got us to heaven, We will not revel in how our good works got us there. We will revel in the riches of His grace and His kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Are you reveling there today? What a wonderful work of redemption we have received. Like the old hymn puts it, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. This order will put everything that is wrong in this world right. And we should live our lives as if that's where we're headed. That's where I'm going. To that land, Emmanuel's land, where the Lamb is all the glory. Where throughout all eternity, we we will show forth, He will show forth the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Corinthians. Look outside the doors. There is absolutely nothing out there like that. 
And all this talk and discussion and junk that's going on outside there, it isn't touching this at all. Don't bring it among God's people. You focus on what Christ has done. Focus now on what you're going to see through all eternity. And don't water it down. Don't empty it of its power. You're lowly. This message is foolishness. But God is exalted above all and will forever be. This is a stiff rebuke to the Corinthians. This is saying, like, you're, you're looking at life entirely the wrong way right now. He has saved you. There is evidence of sanctification in your life, but you're looking at life the wrong way. And it serves to remind us that we should never look to our world for acceptance and understanding. It's not out there. We're not going to make it understandable through reason. Praise God when we enjoy the freedom to believe what we believe and to put that belief into practice. But we should never be confused about the absurdity of the gospel in the eyes of unbelievers. And we shouldn't try to help God out by making it more acceptable. We're not going to help him out. We're just going to get in his way. Even the religious unbeliever spurns the true gospel and mocks our faith. This is as it will be. And indeed, this is as it should be. But let us also take to heart that this irrational, absurd, unreasonable message in the world's estimation is the very power of God to save souls, so that it is all of Him. We need to proclaim that message, not to those who accept it and welcome us in only, but to those who will find it absurd. And what we need to do then as we proclaim that is trust its power. Of course, some will write us off, if not mock us. But by the grace of God, some will respond because God will enable them to hear the word and grant to them the gift of faith. In the privilege of God, I've had a chance to be in that spot every once in a while through life where you proclaim this message of salvation and you go, this just sounds crazy. This sounds cra- this, per- this, is, this, is, this just sounds so absurd. And then the person starts to respond. And you go, really? And you see the hand of God in that moment. As he turns the lights on and someone says, I've never seen anything in my life that's more rational and more beautiful. So that faith, let us remember, is not blind faith. And let no one sell you that can of goods. It is the most rational faith possible. But it starts by believing God at His Word. And it will always start there. Remember Pilgrim's Progress. There's a narrow gate. Jesus' teaching. There's a narrow gate. We'll reason it out for the rest of eternity, but we must start at the word of the Lord. And that brings us to this table of the Lord today. Think of how irrational this is 
to a reasoning world. You get together, you venture out on a single-digit morning in January to remember the death of an ancient Jew. Like, what's wrong with you? There's football on today. There's food to be made. There's things to do. I mean, just stay inside. It's cold out there. It's just the grace of God that we come to this table and say, this is the most important thing in the universe. And will be forever. As believers, we gather here to remember our Redeemer and our Lord. Father, help us do that as you point us to the Son We gather before this table as our hearts are prepared, as we lift prayers of praise and confession and thanksgiving to you, may we recognize the significance of this gathering, of this remembrance, of this communion as the body of Christ with the presence of Christ among us. We ask that you'd meet with us here and draw us close as we remember. Through Christ we pray.